Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. That's good. Um, here's what I actually want to do, though. Is I want to talk to you this morning in a message I'm calling Near the Heart of Jesus. And I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about being close to Jesus. Actually, uh, not just having an intellectual understanding of Jesus, but having a heart that's really actually connected to Jesus. And so uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. But before we do that, I want to spend just a moment talking to you about friendship. Everybody in here have a friend? I hope everybody has a friend. I hope, I hope you have more than a friend. Uh, here's what I've come to realize, uh, especially after living for a little while. If you make it to age 35 or 40 and you have two or three friends, you're actually very, very rich. Uh, one of the things I'm picking up on more and more uh, just in my pastoral life is how often it is for people to get to be around 35 or 40 and not really have any meaningful friendships. Okay, so I just want to say right up front that if that's you, the good news is you still have time, you're not dead, and it can be fixed. And if you do have friends, the good news is you're very rich. Like no matter what else is happening in your life, you're very, very rich. But I want to talk to you about friendship more than that. I want to, I want to talk to you um, on a couple layers here when it comes to friendship. Uh, how many of you are aware of the fact that there are different kinds of friends? Do you guys have different kinds of friends? Yeah. Like, um, how many of you had, like, childhood friends, and maybe you're even still connected to them? Anybody go to daycare with somebody, and you're like, we're actually still kind of friends. Like, we haven't seen them in 20 years, but we're friends. Yeah. There's, like, childhood friends. There's, there's like, people you grew up with. But then there's also um, neighbors who are friends. Anybody here have a neighbor who's their friend? Do you know why your neighbor's your friend? It's actually very obvious. Because they're your neighbor. Uh, which, which, this is some hidden insight into friendship. Most of friendship is just proximity, right? Most of friendship is just proximity. So if you're, by the way, if you're back to that person who doesn't have any friends or doesn't have any really meaningful friends, you have to ask yourself, what, in what ways emotionally, relationally, uh, physically, spiritually, am I not giving myself space with people? In what ways am I keeping myself distance from people? Because friendship, especially for those of us who have friends who are neighbors, it just reveals to us friendship is basically just proximity. It's like, who are you around? Back to that childhood friend thing. Why were you friends with those people when you were a kid? Uh, They were just with you at school, right? It's like it was the dude who sat beside you in third grade. That's why. So most of friendship is just proximity. There's childhood friends, there's neighbor friends. Uh, uh, how many of you have gym friends? Chad, how five right here? Bam. I got some gym friends. <laughs> Chad's the trainer. Uh, I got gym friends. And you know what the great thing about gym friends is? We, you can just go in there and you can just talk about throwing stuff around. You know, you can throw some stuff around, heavy weights, and you just, like, you just get to like turn a certain amount of like the emotional space completely off. And we just, we just lift junk and throw it and we talk about it, you know? And, and some of those people actually help you get better at lifting junk and throwing it. And some of you are like, that doesn't sound fun. I, I just want to tell you, it's actually great fun. 
okay? Uh, side note, this has nothing to do with the message. Side note, here's what I've learned. Uh, I think I've told you all some of this. I'm an Enneagram 8, right? Uh, this, this is not just true for Enneagram 8s, but it's definitely true for Enneagram 8s. Uh, I can't be happy unless I let some of the emotional energy I carry with me go out of my physical body. Like literally cannot be happy. You need gym friends. If you're an Enneagram 8, you need a gym friend more than anybody else in here. Okay, back into the message. Uh, church friends. Hopefully everybody here has a church friend or two. And why would you need a church friend? You just need some people who are on the spiritual journey with you. By the way, uh, your spiritual journey, your faith, your walk with Jesus, you can't do it alone. You cannot do it alone. So you need some church friends. Uh, there's also special interest friends. Special interest friends. I, I've never done this. I've never done this, but I understand there are certain people who dress up like comic book characters or superheroes, and they take magic wands, and they get together, right? Isn't that a thing? They do that, right? They, they get their all, everybody comes with their magic wand. You know? Some of you have special interest friends, and some of you have a, a, a similar bonding point, which is magic wands and Frodo, and the Lord of the Rings, and Spider-Man, and occasionally you get together at a convention where everyone is similarly odd, you know? Yeah, solid burn. Uh, some of us also have friendships with people in our family. I know some of us also have enemies with people in our family, but, but how many of you have a brother or a sister or a cousin that's, that's one of your close friends. Yeah, can I tell you something? That's actually the way it's supposed to be. You know, fight for that, you know? Fight for that. Okay, so in addition to different kinds of friends, how many of you understand that there's different degrees of friendship? You know, uh, that sometimes you have friends and they're just like your surface friends or something, you know? But then there's also, uh, in addition to, you know, acquaintances or surface friends, there's, there's like truer friends, you know, and, and those are people you share not just space with or a special interest or proximity with, but they share maybe the emotional aspects of what's happening in your life or the spiritual aspects of what's happening in your life. And those, those are like maybe better or closer friends. And then how many of you know that beyond even just close friends, you have what I call like super true friends? And, you know, what are super true friends? Well, those would be like the two or three people who stick with you no matter what's going on in your life. Anybody here have a person who has stuck with them through really bad seasons? No, let me define bad season, right? Uh, this kind of friend sticks with you even when you're an idiot for months, maybe years. Anybody ever had a really long bad season? You don't have to put your hand up. I'll put my hand up for all of us, right? Yeah, some of us have made boneheaded, really selfish, terrible, destructive decisions, maybe for more than a month, maybe years, and someone hung in there with you when you were your worst self. That person is a true, true friend. Yeah, there's levels of friendship. By the way, uh, as we increase in our levels of friendship, there's a word that sort of bubbles to the surface that sort of encapsulates that kind of a friend. And it's the word intimacy, isn't it? That's one, of the, that's one of the words we would put with our truest friends. We'd have to put the word intimate. Now, I understand there's a couple problems with the word intimate, right? Uh, number one, all the men just checked out. 
or a lot of men. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't do that. You know. No, thank you. But the second word, the second issue with the word intimacy or intimate is a lot of us in here just sort of only connect it to sexuality, right? So part of the issue with intimacy is, A, it causes some men to like freak out and take a step back. And then it also just connects into what I would consider our, our, our cultural narrative of intimacy has to do with sexuality. I, I just want to say a couple things about intimacy to maybe sort of redefine it. Uh, here's what intimacy really is. Intimacy is about sharing, isn't it? And intimacy is about exclusivity. So intimacy is not just sharing with everyone, but intimacy is what I share with one or two people, right? And that is what we have when we get down to our truest friends. And, and by the way, uh, this kind of intimacy is what everybody in the room is actually searching for. That's what everybody here is wanting, uh, men included, men included. Uh, that's what men mean when they use code words like brotherhood, fraternity, and camaraderie. What they're really getting at, what, when, we, when we say those words, what we're really saying is, is I would like to have a person or two that I could share the truest aspects of my life with in vivid detail. And everybody here wants that. Now, here's what I want to share this morning. Uh, not only are we looking for intimacy with other people, but if you're here, you're here for some reason, and probably it's because uh, you're wanting to share this kind of exchange, this kind of intimacy with Jesus, and then to take it even maybe one step up, one of the things I hope you understand this morning is that Jesus is actually looking for friends. And he's looking to share aspects of who he is with people in the same vivid detail that you were hoping to share some of your own life with. All right, I want to read you a passage out of John chapter 13. It's a little bit long. I tried to cut it down. I couldn't figure it out because you just kind of have to get into the story and we're honestly jumping in kind of in a poor spot. This is the Last Supper. I don't know what else to say. Here we go. After washing the disciples' feet, he put on his robe again, he being Jesus, and he sat down and asked, do you guys understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for knowing them. No, wait. Doing them. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I've chosen, but this fulfills the scripture that says, the one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. All right. Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to him at the table. And Simon Peter, Peter, Simon Peter, who is that? I speak for a living. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus responded, it is the one whom I give the bread 
I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going into the night. All right, that'll be our text. And I know some of you are thinking, what does this have to do with friendship? A few things. That's why I'm the preacher. Okay, let's just work this for a moment. <clears throat> Jesus shows up, starts doing ministry. And how many of you have read the Gospels and seen that oftentimes there were great crowds who were attracted to Jesus? In fact, a couple times the crowd got so big that Jesus had to get in a boat and go out a little distance so he could talk to everybody. So imagine being at the lake and, and sitting in a, a bass boat and Jesus is standing on the bass boat and there's like a, you know when we do church at the lake? Imagine there's like 5,000 people there and Jesus is teaching, right? People were attracted to him. Especially if you read the Gospel of Mark, one of the things you pick up on real quick is that Jesus is just so hounded by the crowds. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, it seems like Jesus, he's just desperate to get any measure of separation sometimes because he's just so hounded. So there's Jesus, he's got ministry, big giant crowds. Okay, inside of this crowd, uh, every single gospel tells us this story, that Jesus went out and he called, not just the crowd, but he called 12 people to him. And in fact, in Mark chapter 3, it, it says this very specifically, uh, he called the 12 apostles to him and it and it said for the purpose of them being with him you know sometimes we read about jesus calling the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles and we think oh this is about jesus being the big boss and then setting setting into place middle management you know or something like that and that really wasn't it because mark tells us that the point of those disciples following jesus was that that they might be with him and that jesus wanted them to be with him so we have this big crowd sometimes thousands um, every single gospel, one of the few stories that's in all four gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. And in every single one, it talks about, well, that day, you know, 5,000 men were fed. Well, you know, many of us realize that women and children would have been there. So like sometimes Jesus had a crowd of 20,000 around him, you know, maybe more. I don't know. And then inside of that, Jesus calls 12. And the purpose of that is Mark chapter three, to be with him. But then inside of the 12, how many of you know that there were three who were like Jesus' best buds? You guys remember who those guys were? Peter, James, John. Peter, James, and John. And those three, uh, they had experiences that the 12 didn't have. Uh, how many of you know that the 12 had experiences that the crowds couldn't have? Right? They got to be with Jesus every day. They walked with him. They heard not just the messages, but they heard the in-between stuff. And not only that, but oftentimes Jesus would teach the crowd something and he would oftentimes do it in parables and he would not tell them what it meant and then with the 12 Jesus would go inside and he would tell them what it meant but then inside of the 12 Jesus had three guys who were kind of like his best buds Peter James and John and those guys had experiences that the other 12 didn't have uh, here's a couple uh, Mount of Transfiguration like when Jesus goes up and he's glowing white he becomes whiter than any launderer can launder clothes. That's what the Bible says. It's kind of a funny way to describe it. Jesus is glowing. And Peter's like, we should build huts. 
for this moment, you know? And then another moment that this happened uh, was Garden of Gethsemane. So right before Jesus is crucified, Jesus asks, not the 12, but he asks Peter, James, and John, would you guys come with me? Because I'm deeply troubled, right? All right. Well, so there's crowds, 12, three. But then how many of you know that inside the three, there was one who was his special friend, right? It was John. And we read about it this morning. In fact, if we could put that back up, Rachel, I'm going to do better this service. I'm already doing better. Uh, look at verse 22 and 23. So Jesus is saying this thing, and by the way, all the 12 are there, right? But I, this is the reason I wanted to share this passage this morning. Um, Jesus says something here to all of them, and basically he's confused everybody. He's like, yeah, somebody here, somebody here is going to betray me. And they're like, what's going on? And look at verse 22 and 23. The disciples, all of them, looked at each other wondering Who's Jesus talking about? Then verse 23, the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Stop. The disciple Jesus loved is who? John. Uh, What gospel are we reading? John. Uh, Does that strike anybody as funny? So John gives himself the title, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Isn't that funny? I love that. I really love that. So there's the crowds, the 12, the three, and then there's one. And the one, being John, gives himself the title, I'm the guy that Jesus loved. So in this story, John writes, well, me, but not really. The one that Jesus loved was sitting next to him at the dinner table. And by the way, one of the things we also know from the Gospel of John is that he's not the only one that Jesus loved. You know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Like, God loves the whole world, but then Even in John chapter 11, you guys remember the story about Lazarus? Lazarus is sick, and they're like, Jesus, come and help him. And Jesus is like, well, I'll be there in a day or two. Jesus literally slows down. He knows he's sick. And you would think Jesus would go off running, and he doesn't. He actually slows down. And Lazarus dies. And Jesus shows up to Lazarus' house. By the way, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they lived together in Bethany, and those were some of Jesus' best friends. And Lazarus is dead in the grave, And Jesus knows that he's going to raise him up. And maybe you guys remember this. This is the little part where in the Bible it says that Jesus wept. Like, why did Jesus weep? Because Lazarus was his friend and he loved him. It's really funny when you think that Jesus knows he's going to raise him up and he's still crying, right? It's the funniest thing. Anyhow, Jesus loves some people, but there's this one disciple in the 12 that Jesus loves. And John gives himself that title. It's really, really funny. How many of you understand that to say this kind of thing reveals some kind of truth in the relationship? If you say that about yourself, it's revealing. I also love the picture that we get in John chapter 13, verse 23. The scripture that's up there. Uh, our, our translation this morning says, The disciple Jesus loved, that'd be John, was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Uh, other translations phrase that a little different. And it, they say something along the fact, something along the lines of this: uh, John reclined at the table and put his head on Jesus's chest. Y'all ever read that? Yeah. Other translations actually point out that John wasn't just sitting next to him, but he was actually putting his head right on Jesus's chest. The tables worked a little different then; they were kind of like low to the ground. And what you would do is you would have your feet away from the table, which makes good sense, right? 
you're walking around on the street, everything's in the street, get your feet away from the table. And everybody would have basically laid down on pillows and you'd put your, you'd lean yourself up on kind of like your left hand, you know, and you'd eat off the table and everybody's around and you're talking, right? And so you can imagine people laying at the table and John is such a good friend with Jesus, he's not just sitting next to him, but he's actually got his head on Jesus' chest. You know, why? Because he's close to Jesus. Uh, Also, I think there's something in here as well. Uh, John was the youngest disciple. He was 16. And so there's some sense in which, like, Jesus is really watching over and caring for this young guy, you know? And can you imagine being the 16-year-old guy on a team with all older older people? You would just be so in, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just love this picture. So this picture here this morning is a picture of the actual relationship. It's like a visual metaphor for the connection that John had to the heart of Jesus. But 24 is as well. So Jesus had said something. It's confused everyone. Everyone knows that something's up, but no one knows who Jesus is talking about. And then in verse 24, Peter says to John, hey, why don't you ask? Why don't you ask Jesus who he's talking about? Okay, so we have to take a time out here. When was Peter ever afraid to say something or to ask Jesus anything? Isn't that weird? Like every other moment in the Gospels, Peter's always like the first one to like blurt something out or, you know, to try something out. Peter's never afraid. But here, he's like, I don't know what's going on. So he asks John, and this is working two different ways. And it's doubling down on this idea that John is actually connected to Jesus. Why would Peter ask him? Well, I think on the one hand, Peter's asking John because, well, John's close, right? So Jesus has said this thing, and this conversation that's happening in 24 and 25 and 26 is actually private conversation that not everyone else at the table is privy to or is hearing, right? So Peter says to John, hey, who's he talking about? And I think he asks him because John is actually closer in proximity, right? But I also think that Peter is asking John because he knows that John has a special connection with Jesus. And if anybody's going to know, John will know. So John asks, and Jesus tells him. And when Jesus tells him, what you have to understand is no one else at the table hears what Jesus says to John. That's actually very important. How many of you would like to have uh, insight into life. How many of you would like to have knowledge and insight and revelation and, and just an understanding of what's happening in the life that is peculiar, unusual, and wonderful? Be, be connected to Jesus. Like, get really close to him. Jesus says to John and no one else, he says, well, it's the one, when I dip this piece of bread into the oil, it's the one that I'm going to hand it to. And so John sees this, and he sees him hand it to Judas. And then Jesus says to Judas, well, hey, the thing you're going to do, go and do it. And everyone hears that, and they think that Jesus is telling Judas, go feed the poor or something, right? Yeah. What's the point here? There's, there's this point of proximity. John is very close, and he's getting insight into things that, None of the other people have gotten insight to. Essentially what's on display here is someone who's gotten near to the heart of Jesus. That's what we see in John chapter 13. The other thing we see in John chapter 13 is not just someone who's gotten 
near to the heart of Jesus, but we see someone who's gotten not near to the heart of Jesus. There's massive contrast. The Bible oftentimes does this. It'll show you like not just the positive, but it'll show you the other side as well. And so not only do we see that John has gotten near to the heart of Jesus, we see that there's someone in the room who has not gotten near to the heart of Jesus. Jesus. And of course, that's Judas. And here's what's peculiar about Judas. Uh, he's seen all the stuff that everybody else has seen. He's traveled with them for three, three and a half years. Judas has seen all of Jesus' miracles. He's heard all of Jesus' sermons. He's heard all the best stories. He's been near Jesus. They've had meals together. They've walked the road one-on-one together. And at the end, at the end, it didn't touch his heart. Apparently, apparently Judas had been touched by something else. And what had, been what had he been touched by? Uh, apparently, he had been touched by love for some other things. And the hints are in verses 28 and 29. So when Jesus hands this piece of bread to Judas, he says, go and do what you're going to do. Nobody else at the table knew what it meant. Since Judas was the treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. That's a little clue as to what had been sown into the heart of Judas. Now, most of us here know the story, right? Uh, Judas ends up betraying Jesus. And how does Judas betray Jesus? He sells him for what? 30 pieces of silver, right? So all the way through this story, all the way through this story, there's this thread, there's this note that Judas had been captured by something else. It's here, it's in other details where we know that Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But it's also in the chapter that immediately precedes this in the Gospel of John. Uh, it's when Jesus raises up Lazarus. And this is actually very important. I'll just tell you really quick. Jesus raises up Lazarus. Mary and Martha are like stoked. You know, they're like, our brother's back. And so they give Jesus a dinner in his honor. Basically a hand clap to say, man, thanks for raising up our brother. We're glad he's not dead. Would you like to have some barbecue? You know, and Jesus shows up. <clears throat> and when he's at that dinner, when he's at that dinner, uh, everybody's really happy. And Mary takes a bottle of expensive perfume and she pours all of it on Jesus' feet. Now, the Bible tells us in some other places that that perfume or that oil was worth a year's wages. So it was worth 50 or 60,000 bucks. You know, some of you are like, that's more than I make. 40 or si 20 or 60,000 or $100,000. A lot. Okay, it was worth a lot of money. And then, in that same moment, John tells us that when Mary pours all of this oil and perfume on Jesus' feet, uh, one person gets upset. Who was it? It was Judas. And what did Judas say? Judas said, hey, this is a big time waste. We could have used that money to serve who? The poor. See the connection here? We could have used that money to serve the poor. Then Jesus being... The ultimate sly guy looks at, looks at Judas and says something that many people have never forgotten, but not before John throws in this little note. So Judas makes this interjection. He's like, hey, we could have sold that and really served the poor. Then John puts in this little autobiographical note into the story, and he says this. He says, Judas didn't really care about the poor. He's the one who had the money bag, and he was stealing from it. 
right? Then Jesus says this to Judas. He says, Judas, you will always have the poor with you, but what she's done to me is beautiful and it'll never be forgotten. And we just read that and we'll go, oh, that's, that's a cool thing. And sometimes we read that and go, uh, that's a good reason to not serve the poor. I've actually heard people use that as an excuse for not serving. Well, all, there's always going to be poor people. Jesus said it, you know? But you've missed the point of what he really said. So let's reframe this. Fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 of oil come out. Judas is like, dude, we should not be pouring this out here. We should sell it to give it to the poor. And Jesus looks at Judas and says... Hey, Judas, as long as you have the money bag and as long as you steal from it, you will always have the poor with you. Isn't that right, Judas? See, those words ring a little different, don't they? Yeah. The reason I'm telling you this story is because it's obvious from that moment, from the fact that Jesus has been sold out by Judas for 30 pieces of silver and by just the general atmosphere of what everybody else in the room thought here in John chapter 13. It's obvious that after three, three and a half years of ministry with Jesus, Judas had not been captured by the heart of Jesus. Instead, he had been captured by the heart of something else. Why am I saying that this morning? I'm saying that because it's possible to be around Jesus and not be affected by him. Uh, It's possible to do ministry and be callous. Uh, It's possible to come to church and miss the invitation. Uh, You could come here for a year. You could come here for two years. Uh, You could sing all the songs and still miss the invitation. Uh, you You could hide your true heart inside other activities. That's always the danger. The danger is that I could hide my true heart inside some other activity. The danger is that I could hide my true heart inside of spiritual activity. That's always the most dangerous thing. And by the way, uh, the issue of money or comfort and security, it often gets in the way of knowing and following Jesus. I think I've got a scripture from Mark this morning. Mark chapter 10. Man, I'm doing better, Rachel. You're doing great. Everything in first service was my fault. Look at this little moment. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Honor your mom and dad. Teacher, the man replied, I've done all this stuff since I was little. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Why am I reading this? I'm just reading this because one of the biggest challenges for anybody, especially for people who have given themselves or hoping to follow Jesus in some way, one of the biggest challenges that oftentimes stands in the way of coming close to the heart of Jesus is money, comfort, and security. All right, so how do we become friends with Jesus? How do we get near his heart? Three things, really quick. Three things, really quick. And by the way, none of these are mind-blowing, okay? I'm going to give you three things, and they're all going to be like, well, yeah, duh, okay? So if you're hoping for some zinger at the end, there is no zinger, okay? Three things for coming near to the heart of Jesus. Uh, Number one, uh, proximity. 
Just like, just like making friends when you were in school. You, you're probably best friends with the kid who sat in front of you or beside you. Come near to Jesus. What does that mean? It means like make some room for Jesus. How many people here text their best friend every day? I text my best friends every day. I call them most days, right? Uh, but I text my best friends every day, and I call my best friends at least three or four times a week. And I don't even like the phone, you know? Yeah. Well, what does it mean to have a friend? Well, you make space for them. Uh, and by making space, I mean you make time. Uh, what does it mean to make time for Jesus? Because some of us are like, I don't see Jesus. And he doesn't answer my texts. He's been ghosting me. Okay, how do, we, how, do we, how do we close the proximity gap with Jesus? It's very, very simple. Create some space or make some space, hold some space uh, to read your Bible and to pray a little bit. It's very, very basic. If you're a new believer, that's just like essential stuff. Uh, you, you, can, you can never do better than to hold a little bit of space in your day to read the Bible and to pray. Uh, maybe you need a Bible app that tells you, you know, three or four verses to read every morning and gives you like one little thought, you know? And, and maybe you spend five or 10 or 15 minutes and you just sort of like process a scripture and you, you pray a little bit and you just hold that scripture with you all day long, you know? That's what I do. I just, I read a little bit of the, the Bible and I just hold some space. And by the way, I don't read a ton of the Bible at one time anymore unless I'm prepping for a message. Like my devotional reading, it's really short. I read two or three verses. Here's what I actually do. I'll just read a passage of scripture and I read it until something in that passage like strikes my heart and like wakes something up. And as soon as it strikes my heart, I stop and I just rest with that part right there. And then I just sort of like pray that through with Jesus. And sometimes that's five minutes, sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's a little longer, but it's usually like five or six minutes. And, and here's how I pray. I just make a list, top of mind awareness. I go one through 10. Every single day I have a, a prayer list of 10 and I just write down either names or situations on there. And then out beside it, I write two or three words that I'm going to pray for. And after I write it down, I pray for them. And it takes like five or six minutes, right? It's not this massive thing, but it's just holding space for a friend that I have. Basic. How do we close the gap with Jesus? Read our Bible. We just pray a little bit. And by the way, if you're a longtime believer, we never outgrow this stuff. We never, if you've been following Jesus for two decades, three decades, six decades, or if you're like Dick Salmon, if you've been following Jesus for 75 and a half years or whatever, which Dick was here first service. Yeah. Yeah. We never outgrow that, you know? So proximity. Uh, how else do we come close to the heart of Jesus? Uh, number two, love, uh, love others. A big duh, right? Love others. Um, one time, this is a funny story. One time, uh, Jesus and his 12 disciples, so his group of buddies, they were crisscrossing Israel. And in order to get to where they really wanted to go a little quicker, uh, they were going to cut through Samaria, which is like a shortcut. But the problem is Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, but they were going to make a shortcut. And some of the Samaritans weren't nice to the 12 disciples and they didn't welcome, their, welcome them into their city. And two of Jesus' very best friends, uh, James and John, they look at Jesus after not being welcomed into the city and they're like, hey, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven and have these people destroyed? <laughs> it's a really funny story. They're like, would you like us, would you like us to pray for genocide? 
would you like to just would you like us to burn these people to the ground? You know, these these dirty, rotten Samaritans. Could we just get rid of them forever because they didn't they didn't serve us any bread? And Jesus is like, guys, you don't know what spirit you're of, you know. And he he rebukes them. He rebukes them. Uh, why am I telling that story? Because how we treat people actually connects us to who Jesus is or disconnects us from who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus tells another parable in Matthew 25. He says, he says basically this. He says, if you give water to the thirsty, if you visit prisoners, if you, if you go to the sick, the needy, if you clothe the naked, Jesus says, you didn't just do it to them. Massive kicker here. He says, you did it to me. So Jesus says, if you go and visit men or women in jail, you're not just visiting them, you're visiting me. That's, a, that's hectic, isn't it? Some of us are wondering, like, where's Jesus? I, don't, I can't find him in my life. Uh, I'll tell you where Jesus is. He's in jail. You know, Some of us are like, well, I, I've been having a hard time connecting with God. I don't know where God is in my life anymore. Well, according to Matthew 25, Jesus is in jail. Jesus is sick in the hospital. Jesus has no clothes, Jesus is thirsty, and Jesus is hungry. And if you do any of these things, Jesus says, you didn't just do it for them, you did it to me. Right? There's something about loving people that brings us near to the heart of Jesus. How many of you have ever like served some people, and especially serving the least and the lost, and after serving the least and the lost, you just felt connected to God? Like You felt like, oh my gosh, I'm doing the right thing. Like, and not just in a surface way, but at the deepest levels of your life, you're like very aware, I'm definitely doing the right thing. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Jesus tells another story in the Gospels. This one's very pertinent to us because we like to get together. Jesus says, it's normal for people to have a dinner party and invite people over to dinner who can in turn invite them back. Y'all remember this one? But he says, if you're really wise, what you'll do is you'll have people come over who cannot return the favor. What is that? That's how you get close to the heart of Jesus. Maybe you make space in your home, and maybe you cook a meal, or maybe you share your table, not with people who could turn around and share their table with you, but you share your table with people who could never have you back over. Near to the heart of Jesus. Uh, we make space for Jesus. We love other people. And then finally, uh, I think we have to put money in its proper place. One of the things we have to do is wake up to the fact that money can steal our heart energy. Here's one of the truths of your life. You are a human being. And this means you have finite capacity. You can only be so strong, so smart, so energetic. You only have so many days. Everyone here is going to die. Everyone here is terminal. Isn't this encouraging? We're all going to die. Finite capacity. And part of what we have to wake up to, this is part of what it means to be a mature person, is waking up to the fact that pursuing money in a dogged way can actually steal heart energy from us that cannot be reacquired. Like when we, when we go down that path, it might actually be absorbing some of our finite resources that we cannot redirect in some other way. So we have to do something about money. What, what, what do we do? Uh, I'll tell you, the most countercultural thing that any of us can do is be generous. The American success gods are saying, acquire, hoard, gather, 
Uh, Jesus tells a story about a guy who had some barns and said, I'm going to knock my barns down and build what? Bigger barns, you know? And after you get bigger barns, what do you want? Bigger barns, you know? Uh, J.P. Morgan once said, uh, somebody asked him, how much is enough? J.P. Morgan said, a little bit more. Just a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. That's the thing about it. There's never enough. And so the most countercultural thing that we can never do is be generous. Be gen- Where will we be generous? Be generous with people. Be generous with the people around us. Uh, be generous with your church. So give to the church. But then beyond that, goodness gracious, give to the people that you live around and that you're with, your neighborhood. Uh, how many of you saw uh, Lucy Schaffner made a post? I think it was yesterday. Like she's a teacher at Campbellsville Middle School and she's like raising some money to buy books for this reading program for kids at her school in this next year. And it's like a couple bucks and kids will have school books for extra reading. Did y'all see stuff, that? Yeah, well, it was a bunch of people. I've read it like five times, right? But I'm just saying there's like a zillion things out there like that, right? How could we, how could we defy the American success gods and then begin to live generously? Oh, you could do something like that. You know, you could take $25 and begin to invest in kids like that. You could take some of your dollars and here at Back to School Time, we could buy backpacks for kids who, got, who have nothing. Uh, you could find out who in your neighborhood doesn't have everything they need. What, what people, especially what kids and what widows or orphans in your neighborhood don't have what they need. And without telling anyone, and especially without putting it on Facebook, you just take care of it. You know? Uh, without making an Instagram video of you writing the check. Get the amount in there. You know? Without making any social media push, we could just take care of it. And in doing so, we defy the American success gods. And in doing so, we actually become deeply connected to Jesus. By the way, the American success gods, if, if you lean into the narrative... What, what they always want us to do is they want us to become like Pharaoh, right? Everything in, in Pharaoh's world, everything comes up to Pharaoh, right? But in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, the man who sits on the throne, everything comes out of him, right? Jesus on the cross, blood comes out, pays for everything, right? In the Old Testament narrative, the most powerful guy is Pharaoh. Everything has to come to him. Yeah, we have to defy the American success gods. And in doing so, we actually become people who are nearer to Jesus. Make space, make space, love people, be generous, be generous. By the way, haven't you ever noticed that the most, maybe this is just me, but the most unattractive quality a person can have is stinginess? Have you ever noticed that? It's like that's the most off-putting thing in the world. Why? Because it has nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. Nothing. Generosity brings us into the heart of God. All right, I've created enough trouble. And I've talked too long. Man, last Sunday I had a 26-minute sermon. Making up for it today. Everybody good? If you're on ministry team, come on up this morning. Everybody else can stand up. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.